Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of the text for the sermon this morning. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 29 or 39. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed there stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would help us to focus our minds and our hearts upon this word, this inspired word written by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us an understanding and that Hearing your word, we would then be doers of your word. Father, we thank you for uh, your humble servant, Mary, who did her task that you assigned to her very well. Lord, and I pray that as we think upon her and her work, that you would bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Every time that we go down to the um, to the abortion clinic um, to witness to people, there's a group of Roman Catholics that are there who uh, spend the whole time uh, praying uh, Hail Marys. They just they they're not really paying attention to people going in and out. They're there to sit, to pray to Mary, and um, and it. You know, especially at this time of year when we think upon Mary's one task that she was given, um, which is to to 
be the, the mother of God, to be the, uh, the one to give birth to the incarnate Son of God. Um, you know, just seeing, seeing what's going on out there and misattributing works to Mary um, makes me think about, you know, preaching on these texts and thinking through how we should think about Mary. No doubt she, we should honor Mary's work and call her blessed in every generation. But that does not mean attributing deity to her, and it does not mean um, lifting up prayers that she can't hear. It does, um, th- that dishonors Mary. That is not to call her blessed. It's to call her something she's not, and to diminish God in the process. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, it always, I mean, it, it may be a little simple-minded, but it always seems foolish to pray to Mary if Jesus is listening. Um, pray to Mary when God says that he hears our prayers. So anyway, Mary receives a message from the angel Gabriel, and she learned that she was, was blessed by God. She learned herself that she was blessed by God, blessed because the son she would have would be uh, extraordinary. He would be the promised Messiah. The very Son of God. And near the end of the passage, the angel Gabriel concluded, For nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, this seemingly impossible thing, a, a son born to a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, was not impossible for God. Nor is anything impossible for God. Now Mary springs into action, coming to terms with God's use of her in in his plan of redemption. The passage um, we look at this morning ends with her poem of praise, that uh, a song that through the centuries has been set to music a uh, countless number of times. It's called the Magnificat. Check out Box Magnificat if you want to hear a good setting of, of this text um, from verses 46 to uh, 55. Um, Before we focus on the Magnificat, um, there are a few things I want to point out in the verses that precede it, 39 through 45. First, following Gabriel's visitation of Mary, she immediately and with haste goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. So she hears from this angel and she learns these great things and she goes. Um, You'll remember that Gabriel not only told Mary what would happen with her, but also um, he also mentioned that Elizabeth would conceive a son in her old age, right? So um, she learns not about just her own conception, but of Elizabeth's. So Mary, filled with excitement, perhaps wanting confirmation that these things were so, goes with haste to visit with Elizabeth. Also remember that uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias already knew quite a bit of what was going on. Um, They knew that their son was... Uh, to be a forerunner before the coming Messiah. What, um, what faithful Israelites had looked forward to was coming to fruition before their eyes. Right? The pace of activity of God's plan of redemption is ramping up at this point. Um, yet Elizabeth and Zacharias don't know about Mary, her cousin's um, pregnancy. So Mary goes to share the news and to embolden her faith when she looked upon her cousin's pregnant belly six months into things. 
right? And we remember that that's a miraculous, that's a miraculous conception as well because they're old, advanced in years, past the age of childbearing, right? And, um, and yet there she is. Second, Mary has only said her greeting just in a sense, entered through the door of her cousin's house when we read that the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And then verse 41, it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, We know that John the Baptist, the child in Elizabeth's belly, would proclaim some 30 or so years in the future that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Remember that his proclaiming of that is way off in the distance, 30 years ahead. Um, so he's, he's going to be announcing, he's going to be the forerunner, he's going to be saying with his mouth many things about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but now John praises him in the only way a baby in the womb can praise, by kicking, by, by uh, punching and kicking and moving and making his presence felt. Which, which many of you women uh, can relate to. Um, and, I mean, um, I, I was talking to Rachel, and she was telling me that, that um, the baby uh, in her womb was hiccuping, right? And so we can sort of tell sometimes what's going on. S- Sarah, when she ate bananas with with Anna, Anna would always get hiccups when she ate bananas. And then you can also tell when the child is just uncomfortable. I mean, they express them, I guess. I mean, you women could, could tell this better, but they express themselves quite vigorously um, there. And here, John the Baptist, who is set out to be the forerunner of the Lord, is the first one who praises Jesus. And he's, he's acting as a forerunner, even from the womb, which is is wonderful, a forerunner flailing and kicking his mother's ribs. And, <clears throat> and all of that activity, when that happens, this, this, this amazing interchange, all of that is summed up by that statement that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, these actions of an unborn baby were prompted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was paying homage to the Son of God who was in Mary's womb. Here, John the Baptist is... Again, floating around in amniotic fluid, receiving nutrients from her mother via the umbilical cord, reacted to the majesty of God at that moment. Even though being shortly previously conceived inside of of Mary. Here are two women being used by God, excited by the fulfillment that is about to take place, excited by their role in in the... um, in the redemption of mankind. But these two women are in a sense being overshadowed by two unborn babies in the womb. They're doing all the real action here and the, the women are just carrying ch- children. Um, their work has already begun. Calvin writes, God in his eternal counsel had chosen him, John, to be Christ's herald, to go before and make a way for him and to prepare the Jews to welcome him as their promised savior. He had not yet assumed that office, but already God was at work, enabling him already to proclaim our Lord's coming. John had not yet uttered a a word, nor could he see. Even so, the movement which his mother felt was like a trumpet sound. And along with Mary, she was bound to see it as proof 
of Jesus' divine majesty. One little action filled with so much significance. It's also clear that Elizabeth, being filled with the Holy Spirit, led her to cry out those beautiful words of encouragement that follow in 42 to 45. Calvin says she is receiving no less than the gift of prophecy. She's prophesying. She spoke in the name of God, Calvin writes, and not on her own authority. She spoke not according to human understanding, nor according to her own conjecture or opinion. She was to minister, so to speak, as an angel, as if to say, this is what God has revealed to me. This is the message I bring in his name in which he has committed to me. So what strikes you about what Elizabeth says? First, it, it's all a blessing of Mary. It's all, it's all blessing of somebody else. It's all a blessing of Mary. She calls her blessed among women, calls her son blessed, calls herself blessed because she's meeting the mother of the Lord and finishes again by praising Mary for her faith, faith in both believing that she would conceive and that Elizabeth would conceive. And so it's all very striking that there is something that is not present in what she says, jealousy. She's not jealous. She's not jealous at all. Rather than bring attention to herself and the, the own miracle that, I mean, she's, she's experiencing her own miracle here. I mean, Zacharias had been, hadn't been able to talk, right? And then the whole naming, and he's a priest, and so they know, they know strange things are happening. But she just defers to somebody else. She encourages the faith of this very young woman before her. Um, here she and her husband have had their own visitation by an angel, and she's followed in the train of Sarah and Hannah, conceiving um, after being barren or conceiving in old age, and all she has is deference toward Mary, whose womb is more blessed and whose faith is more pronounced. She bows before God himself. It would have been, <clears throat> it would have been very easy for Mary to go one of two ways. First, um, or for, for Elizabeth to go one of two ways. First, she could have despised Mary because God had raised her up and God had blessed her with an indescribable gift. Her words would have smacked of jealousy and she would have, been attempt, you know, she would have attempted to put Mary in her place to bring her down. Oh, don't be proud, Mary. Right? You know, seeing her excitement. Oh, you know, things, things not, might not be how they seem. And to bring her down. Don't be proud. And what God had lifted up, what God had blessed, Elizabeth would have been bringing down. You know, being one of those, one of those people that always brings a dose of reality to every situation. Or in this case, it would have been a dose of unreality. Um, <clears throat> do you ever do that when you see others blessed by God? God's blessing resting on somebody else. Do you ever get jealous? Everyone's nodding their head yes. Good. Um, <clears throat> do you call the blessing of God a curse and move on in your bitterness? This is, the, this is the mode of the Pharisees, right? This is what the Pharisees always did. They wanted to kill Jesus because he healed, the, he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Ah, let's kill him. You know, not such a good work. Don't be proud, Jesus. We're going to kill you. You know, healing's... Healings, those are curses, right? 
They saw this blessing as a curse. On the other hand, Elizabeth could have gone entirely the opposite way. When in the presence of this blessed woman, she could have gone crazy with adoration, right? In a sense, fallen at Mary's feet and, and basically worshipped her. Rather than bowing before Jesus, she would have bowed before this blessed woman. She would have swooned before her and given to her what only belongs to God, worship. Do you ever do that when you're in the presence of somebody that God has blessed? Oh, let me have a portion of your blessing. Um, you, must, you must truly have the favor of God. And it, maybe it will rub off on you. Um, it's easy for the blessing that God bestows upon another to become the object of our worship, the object of our desires, rather than the God who gave the blessing, the God who gives blessings. Do you worship the gifts of God rather than God himself? Remember Acts uh, 14, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Laconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. To which Paul and Barnabas tear their robes and they say, we're just men with the same nature as you. (laughs) You know, we're just men with the same nature as you. They just performed some miracles. And then these people want to worship them as God. And they're like, no, no, worship the God behind the miracles. We're just men that God used for these miracles. Um. Elizabeth here takes a middle road. She honors what God has honored, avoiding pride and avoiding obeisance, avoiding worship. She realizes the blessing is that which is coming through Mary. The birth of a Savior who would save her from her own sins. Would that the church through the ages had taken the same middle road, especially when it comes to Mary. So Elizabeth praises God. Then it is Mary's turn to praise God. And what a, what a powerful and beautiful song that she sings or poem that she recites. Um, <clears throat> let's read verses 46 through 56 again. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So what are the themes of this song? What, are, what do we pull out of here? And ask yourself whether these are the themes of, of, of your songs. Is this the themes, the themes of your walk with God, the themes of your life? Um, one other point before we walk through this passage. One of the remarkable things about this passage is Mary's, Mary's resolve to submit to the Lord and his will. Just her basic, quick resolve to submit to the Lord and his will. Remember how she responded to the angel Gabriel after he said that nothing will be impossible with God. She said, behold, the, the slave of the Lord. 
may it be done to me according to your word. I mean, there's faith, right? There's faith. She says, behold, may it be done to me according to your word. Um, no doubt she's curious. No doubt she has questions. No doubt she's afraid. No doubt she doesn't quite fully comprehend what's going on, and yet she's, she has been in the presence of an angel who's been in the presence of God, and so she responds. She's a picture of submission to the will of God, a picture of how all of us should approach the word. Can we say along with Mary, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to, to me according to your word. I mean, can we say that? May it be done to me according to your word. Um, this is the expression, the soul given over to God, the soul that loves God, the soul that's humble before an omnipotent God. So first in the passage we see one, Mary's joy in God. She just has joy in God, her Savior. Uh, Mary begins by speaking of her delight in God. She says that her soul exalts in the Lord and that her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. Um, this is more than saying she's excited or that she's bursting at the seams, that she can't wait for what's coming. Um, the very core of her being, she says, her soul and her spirit, using those two words, maybe there's a distinction, maybe there's not. But the, the very soul, core of her being, her soul or spirit, is rejoicing. Have, have you sensed your soul and your spirit rejoicing? It's different than just, you know, smile, smile for the camera. No, it's like a joy that, that, is, um, that animates you. A joy that's, um, that, that causes your mouth to speak to the glory of God, right? Um, the very core of her being is rejoicing. And that rejoicing arises because she knows what? That God is her Savior, that is where true joy begins. That is where the only lasting joy of our lives can truly take root and never stop growing. Her praise, we could say, is not simply on her lips, but it arises from her heart. Her Savior is not only in her womb, but in her heart, right? She is rejoicing in her Savior. And remember, her Savior is in her womb while she's singing the song or reciting this poem, or speaking this to her friend. Um, <clears throat> you know, my own conversion, that true joy of my own conversion that I've told you about before, in the sophomore year of college at University of North Carolina, when I was converted, I knew joy not just as a, a superficial emotion, but deep in my spirit and my soul. The brightness of the sun changed. The excruciating weight of my sin lifted. The um, joy of knowing God loved, loved me and knew me and that he was there and that his love would never desert me. God is knowing that he was stronger than my sin, stronger than my enemies, stronger than my temptations, stronger than uh, all the world. And I knew this joy. Um, think of children, the joy that they have all the time that does seem to well up, not just, uh, it's not just on their face, but it's in their limbs, right? Um, that joy, that kind of joy, but a, a, a spiritual joy. God has redeemed you from death. He has paid the penalty for your sins, purchased you a place in, in heaven. Why so downcast? <laughs> you know? Why so depressed and grumbling? 
Um, should not your joy be like that of a child? Should not your joy be like that of Mary here? Um, <clears throat> are you rejoicing in God your Savior? Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, do you see what a testimony, what a strength, what power will be, what your joy will be in your testimony? Um, do those around you see joy? Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and those, that's, that's a convicting question to me. You know, I'm still a recovering dour artist. You know, that, that liked to be sad, that thought the height of living was being made to weep at the wretchedness of everything, which is ridiculous, right? Um, so, so I'm still recovering there, and I'm still, you know, do those around you see your joy? You may have all the apologetic answers and fill your brain with all kinds of, of objections to Christianity, but your witness would be more powerful if you had the joy of the Lord in your heart as you went about your witness, as you went about making coffee, whatever. Uh, make this evident to your family this Christmas. Make it evident. Let's, let's all make it evident that we have the joy of the Lord, the joy of the knowledge of our Savior. Second, we see Mary's humility. In verses 48 and 49, we read of Mary's view of what God has done for her. God has had regard for the humble state of his slave. Um, God has turned his attention toward this young woman, this ordinary, average, young woman. Right? Ordinary, average, young woman. Nothing special about her. No immaculate conception. Just ordinary, average Israelite. She's not boasting that her, her... She is not boasting that her humility required God to bless her in the ways he had. Rather, she is being self-effacing and desires to give God the preeminence, attributing her happiness to him all along. Mary is in awe that God would bless her in her lowliness. Right, That God would honor her with the carrying of the Son of God, though she is just a lowly slave. Mary, the creature, is blessed to carry in her womb her creator, her savior, her God. She's overwhelmed at this. She does not boast as if this is her due. No one could rightly boast that that was her due. She does not claim, as others might be tempted to, that she earned this right. That would be shocking pride. That would be the grossest kind of pride. What woman, what sinful woman could earn the right to bear the Son of God? None. Zero. Augustine said the following about the incarnation and the amazing prospect of the Eternal One taking on flesh. Listen to this. He by whom all things were made was made one of all things. The Son of God by the Father without a mother became the Son of Man by a mother without a father. The Word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The Maker of the Son was made under the Son. He who fills the world lay in a manger, great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. This was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor was his tininess overcome by his greatness. You know, Augustine, 
Read these church fathers. Read Augustine because they'll make your thoughts have thoughts. You'll be like, whoa, that is so well put. It's, it's expressed something that I've never been able to articulate. And so read them. But no doubt Mary, as she is pondering these things in her heart, has, has such thoughts as these. I mean, it's about to happen to her. And she's like, whoa, God created all things and God in me. What, you know, how? Um, and her reaction is, who am I that I should be used this way? Who am I that I should be used this way? Yet her humility does not turn to a denial, right? False humility would have said, no, not me. You should choose somebody else, really. Um, no, her true humility leads her to accept what God had commanded in the, in the fear of him. And yet she knows that this is an exalted position to be in, the mother of Jesus. <clears throat> From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Is she boasting again? Is that a boast? Or is that her recognizing that this this is an extraordinary work of God? If we respect Jesus, if we love the Son of God, if we know who he is in all of his eternal glory, we will call the ordinary woman who birthed them blessed. She's blessed because of what God has done how God used her, not by what she had done or how she had allowed God to use her. Third, Mary Mary praises the power of God. Mary praises the power of God. Mary now turns to contemplate the power of God from the contemplation of what God has done for her. Her mind now turns to the, the great things God has done throughout all the ages of the earth. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. I mean, just think about how all of history is comprehended in those sort of six points. She looks back over the sweep of history and she sees the work of God in all of it. The proud, the rich, the rulers, he has brought down. The humble, the hungry, and the slave, he has brought up. Um, This is the great dividing line in all of humanity. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud cannot possibly have any apprehension of who uh, the true God is. Because when a man is given eyes to see who he is, his awesome holiness and fearful majesty must obliterate his pride. The proud man thinks his strength is comparable to God's strength. The proud man thinks his wisdom is comparable to the wisdom of the creator. The proud man thinks thinks that he is perhaps slightly less than God. And all those men who have lived for their pride, the great men and women of history, lie buried in graves. Brought down. Brought down. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Brought down. And the proud around us who live today, who shake their fists at God, will also be brought down as well. But the humble, those who, who are given the knowledge of God in Christ, spit at themselves. Right? They're really disgusted by themselves. 
by the shallowness of their wisdom, by their short-sightedness, by their unkindness. They're sickened by their constant sinfulness and distressed by their weakness. And this man, God, brings up, that humble man who's disgusted of himself, God brings up and exalts and gives grace to through his son Jesus. And many would prefer to inherit the kingdoms of the world that will be burned up than inherit treasures that cannot be destroyed, that cannot decay, that cannot be stolen. The power of God through the whole sweep of history is captured in Mary's statement. What looks to us like prosperity will one day simply result in great destruction. It's just fodder for destruction, right? And what looks like destruction will one day be prosperity, right? The, the, the humble man will have stored his treasures in heaven and will receive them only after he's died. The proud will be punished and the humble will be pardoned. Fourth and finally, she praises she praises the salvation of God. Finally, Mary ends, ends her song by praise of praise by pointing to the fulfillment of God's promise to save his people. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So Mary stands at this pivot point, this fulcrum in history, and she knows that God's promises to her fathers from ages before, are being fulfilled in miraculous fashion. Genesis 17.7, remember way back that promise. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So what joy in her soul, knowing that her Messiah, the, the covenant keeper, was here. The joy of childbirth is extraordinary, but the joy of salvation is far more extraordinary. Here, Mary enjoys both, but spends her song on rejoicing in her glorious Savior, rejoicing in redemption. Not that she just she's finally getting her little baby. No, no. She is giving birth to her Savior. And then from here out, her relationship with her son, as we read about it in the scriptures, is strange. It's strained. It's her, her, she's troubled, right? The, the, her soul is pierced, right? And, and, and they have interactions that, you know, we don't get many interactions, but we get some. But even on the cross, you remember that, that Jesus um, does a very uh, kind thing in making sure that Mary has... Um, has a home, right? He's caring for her body as well as for dying for her soul. Um, <clears throat> so praise God, rejoice in your salvation. And um, read this Magnificat and, and think, upon, think upon what what we've just gone through and listen to it. Find recordings of it and listen to it and, uh, and praise God that way. Uh, during this week.